Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. How'd you know it was me? Same caller ID. Oh, what's it say? Linda Tripp. It does? Yeah. I have an unpublished phone, the idiot. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. No sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Impeachment, the podcast from Vanity Fair about the FX series American Crime Story colon impeachment. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. Uh, and I'm Richard Lawson. Um, hello. We are here to talk to you about the sixth episode of the series Impeachment, which is titled Manhandled. And as I think we teased on last week's episode, this is the one where Monica Lewinsky gets wrapped up with the FBI and I think realizes uh, just the extent of uh, trouble that she's in, though maybe not the kind of trouble that the FBI wants to tell her that she's in, which we'll get into. Um, as a reminder, uh, every season I'm still watching, we pick a different show to go in depth on. We have been covering impeachment, which recounts the efforts to impeach Bill Clinton, uh, partly over his affair with Monica Lewinsky, as we've learned over the course of watching this show, I think uh, it was a lot more complicated than that and complicated in ways that was hard to follow at the time and might even be hard to follow as you watch the show. Um, and in this one, it does get really complicated because you've got um, lawyers for Kenneth Starr who started off investigating Whitewater, um, holding Monica Lewinsky in a hotel room, uh, someone against her will for around 11 hours. It's a it's a real record scratch. How did I get in this situation uh, moment? Right. Yeah, and it you know it it finally ties us into the the first episode of the show, which we saw the setup for this, and yeah, so now we're kind of in the present tense. 
Yeah, shows these days really love their in media res uh, beginnings and impeachment was no different. And now we uh, circle back around to where we started. Um, as always, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We still really love hearing from you. And um, this week, Richard, we got a really special email from a, I would say, a celebrity guest, uh, Brad Simpson, who is an executive producer on this show, American oh, wow. Crime Story Impeachment, and uh, has worked with Ryan Murphy for a long time, uh, emailed us to uh, answer our like very tiny little questions, which I'm so grateful for. So the bookmark, do you remember Linda opening a bookmark? gift for monica lewinsky uh in uh i believe episode four yes mm-hmm. uh that was a real thing in real and brad says in reality it also had a phrase about friendship on it it shows how thoughtful monica was she gave a lot of gifts not just to clinton and they often reflected how much she listened to her friends um oh. so yeah a little extra heartbreaking given um that you see that um and then the thing that he really answered us about was the thing we saw in episode four where vernon jordan uh meets with monica lewinsky and then kind of pats her on the butt on her way to the elevator um, so he says, this is actually a def- detail from Monica's story. The book Andrew Morton wrote with Monica's cooperation in the immediate aftermath of the events. Monica has an incredible memory for detail, even to this day. But when she got the first draft of episode four, she didn't remember this moment. And remember, Monica Lewinsky is an executive producer on impeachment. Um, so basically they had to say, Hey, Monica, in 1999, you did remember this <laughs> and in the intervening 20 years. She had forgotten about it, which is fascinating. Um, and so Brad continues, in her description of the time, it is presented just as a detail, not as something that was outrageous or specifically upsetting. I think that reflects how common that sort of behavior was, which I think is what the show really depicts it as. It's like something he doesn't really think about. She's maybe a little bit stunned by, but kind of moves on uh, and really fits with the way this show is dealing with um, gender relations from this time. Yeah, it just it was like waving goodbye, but obviously sexualized in a gross way and paternalistic. And yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess kind of the norm for in many office cultures. Yeah. Um, and then there's one more detail that Brad included in the first episode where Kathleen Willey um, is takes Linda's job and she kind of t- packs up her stuff and leaves the White House in a huff. And uh, Ryan Murphy was directing the episode. And he said, Brad Simpson said he felt like it needed a more powerful end beat. He asked us to give Linda a final line. We told him that in reality, Linda said to Kathleen, I will get you as she stormed out of the office. Sarah Burgess, the show creator, had not put it in because it felt almost cartoonish, like the Wicked Witch from Oz. Ryan had Sarah put down her box of personal items and return to Kathleen to say it. it became the final beat of the scene. So Linda Tripp, dramatic in real life, which is exactly what this show is less to believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to be kind of dramatic to have a Christmas store. <laughs> oh, but that's still like really high on my list of ideal like retirement retreats. Just give me a Christmas store and get me out of this world. And I just realized that her Christmas store was in Middleburg, Virginia, where they have a very nice film festival. So that's true. Yeah, yeah. which we uh, talked about on Little Gold Men yeah. this week or last week. It all it all connects back to each other. Um, okay, let's get to the episode itself. Um, unlike last week, we have kind of one big story in this, which is Monica with the FBI agents. Uh, but there are two side stories that I wanted to to get before so that we could kind of get into the meat of it. And the smallest one that I wanted to talk about first was uh, Ann Coulter and George Conway and their six bottles of champagne <laughs> um, because they got their hands on the trip tapes. And basically, uh, Ann Coulter arrives at this. Uh, I, guess, I guess it's George Conway's apartment. It's just like, hey, guess what? We're listening to the trip tape. This is like the best day of our lives. Um she actually says, I wrote this down. These tapes are going to be in the Smithsonian one day. We're living a page in U.S. history book. This is a coup d'etat and we're the coup. I don't know if Ann Coulter really said that, but that, that seems to track, right? Oh, yeah. That sort of like del- delusion of grandeur that some people, I mean, both on both sides of the aisle. But I mean, I'm just like, I, I see, I notice that a lot on the right, like they speak in these sort of like 
you know, august terms about their mission and their duty and what's happening in the world. Um, yeah, it tracks, even if it wasn't literally said by her. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we know that a lot of the things that are happening in the story right now happened really fast. Like you've got um, Michael Escoff getting ready to publish a story that Matt Gerard is going to beat him to. You've got Bill Clinton testifying in, jo- in the Jones case. That all really is happening around a weekend. I don't know if Ann Coulter and George Conway were really listening to the tapes at the same time that Monica was being held in the hotel room. But it is plausible and it makes for really useful parallel action, I think, because you're so engrossed in Monica's really harrowing story in this hotel room and then seeing how already... Her private life is being turned into the spectacle for these uh, right wing um, opportunists who kind of see a chance to make their name on this. Yeah. I mean, one of the tragedies of many in this episode is that there I think there I mean, maybe I'm misreading this psychologically, but it feels almost as if Monica and her mother kind of think, okay, as long as we're here and kind of controlling this, like it's. It's it's in stasis. It's it's not progressing, right? Mm-hmm, but then you mm-hmm. see the stuff with Coulter and Conway, and you're like, no, no, it the, the the wheels are already turning. Like this is this is already out of control, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that the fact that they don't know that yet, um, or I mean, maybe are starting to sense it, obviously, um, is just very sad. I did have one question about the Coulter scenes, though, mm-hmm. and maybe it's I just wasn't paying close enough attention to previous episodes. But where did she get the tapes from? Was it from- she won't she won't say okay. um I don't know I'm, I've been having this problem and you know maybe not a real problem but like as the show goes on I'm just like okay what happened in the previous episode how are these people all connected to each other um but you know that Lucianne has basically connected mm-hmm. George Car George Conway to the star team so like presumably Lucianne could have given it straight to them because she would have had tapes of it right 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 yeah and the fact that they just the, the very fact that there are already copies out you know, I know it's like, oh, oh God, you know, it was I mean, it was already can, so big and and it, people it just didn't they didn't know it yet. You know, the fact that you can listen to them right now on YouTube, you know, like they're I mean, I don't know if they're in the Smithsonian, but they are, are part of the you know congressional record like they right. they're out there as much as anything can be. Uh, I also want to know that George Con- Conway had plans to go see some kind of play or something with uh, Ingram and David Brock. Ingram being Laura Ingram and David Brock being the guy who uh, broke the Trooper Gate story, which we have talked about earlier in the um, in this season. He's kind of a uh, a right wing columnist who uh, later kind of regretted his actions in all of this. So nice I, game you there. I believe they were going to dinner uh, oh, at the right. Monocle, which is a very... Uh, you know, rubbing elbows kind of DC establishment restaurant. I, I don't know if it's still open, but I've used it in jokes to make myself sound like I know like DC stuff and I don't. I just Googled like po- <laughs> restaurants politicians go to. That's really, that's the fact that it's called the monocle that feels so like, well, we want to be worthy of the New Yorker, so we're going to call it the monocle. And I know. Right? <laughs> I hope that works. Yeah. I also like the sub- the little subtle thing where he's like, I'm supposed to be going to dinner with these with, with, Ingr- with Ingram and and like, well, you know, I spared you that or something like just once again, showing that they just don't like each other, even though they operate in so similar ways, which is actually maybe why they don't like each other. Yeah, exactly. Too close to each other. Um, we get one bonus scene with them or basically uh, they're listening to the tapes. And as we know from watching the show, the, most of the tapes is like Linda and Monica talking about diets and mm-hmm. clothes and all this, you know, the boring stuff that if someone listened to your phone calls uh, from 1998, you would be hearing about. Uh, and Ann Coulter has this incredibly Ann Coulter line. Uh, I'm at once captivated and yet now completely understand why in some cultures they drown their female infants. Um, man, Ann Coulter, you suck. You're yep. just constantly performing for an audience, mm-hmm. <laughs> even if they're not there. Um, but George Conway kind of has it right. Like, there's no quid pro quo here. There's not the moment where 
you know, the whole thing that they were trying to pursue, which is that Vernon Jordan got Monica a job in exchange for lying about her affair with Clinton, um, which as far as we know, and as far as anyone has said, like that never actually happened. And it's not on those tapes. Um, so you kind of get the sense even from then that like this case that they're trying to build doesn't have a foundation to actually go forward hard as they may be trying. And I think that 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 exchange about like, we just don't have it, it's not here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like screwing an office girl isn't, you know, high crimes or whatever the term he was using. Yeah. Um, and, and, and culture kind of is just like, well, whatever, you know, like doesn't really care. And I think that that does in some ways illustrate a schism that has only widened on the right in recent years between like the for- the so-called like for- like better Republicans, you know, who fo- who did to some extent follow codes of ethics and rules and then all of the other stuff that's like Trumpism and it just flouts all that. And, and I, I just I feel like that that little scene is kind of setting up those oppositional sides, you know, between the people yeah. who are like. Let's go by the book and the people who are like, no, let's throw the book at everybody, you know? Yeah. And the notion that you can like, if you can kick up enough dust around something to get people to, to be skeptical, then like, that's enough. Right. And it doesn't really matter what facts are behind that. Um, okay. So and the other parallel plots um, is Linda, basically. You know, she is in um, the beginning of the episode. We start with her on January 16th, 1998. There's a title card about it. And you see her making her slim fast breakfast and basically her side of what we saw in episode one of calling Monica and saying, let's meet at the Pentagon City Mall. Um, and then uh, she goes and meets with the FBI team in the hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton um, and is running late because uh, the Metro was an absolute catastrophe, which is, again, just such a Linda phrase. Like, everything for her has to be a crisis on some unknown level. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, and, that, that line is great. It, you just, we've all known someone like that. Or someone, I know. You know, where it's just like every day it's something like, oh, you know, I just had this horrible meeting or whatever. And it's like, you're just doing, you know, like everyday things. You're taking the, the this metro. This is what life you know? is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and as uh, Mike Emick, the FBI agent played by Colin Hanks, wonders uh, who runs late to a sting operation. And it's uh, Linda with an eternally inflated sense of her own importance. Um, and so what's interesting in this and I, what we keep talking about in Sarah Paulson's performance is like, she's doing her whole like uh, self-aggrandizing Linda thing, but she's also, you can see her having real doubts. Like she's really panicked when laying out her clothes to wear to the mall. And, you know, she's going to get in the elevator with these FBI guys and she has this moment of hesitation and kind of steals herself for it. Do you feel like that's, that's the Linda that we've known all along that we see here, like plunging ahead despite a conscience, maybe nagging her. Yeah. And there are a couple of moments where she's like, you know, she's you know, talking about the nobility of the Reagan White House or the Bush Bush Senior White oh, House. Oh yeah, 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 we'll get there. Um, and that she's doing it for the country, her country. You know, I, I think she's trying to convince her, like you know, redouble her commitment to it because she's having these doubts. I also think that when she's sort of dismissed from the hotel room in one scene, like mm-hmm. okay, thank you, Miss Trip, we're done with you. She realizes, like, oh, I'm actually not at the center of this. Yeah, like, it's it's all over. I, yeah, exactly. And I think there's definitely some you know anticlimax and disappointment happening there too. Yeah, it made me think of what we talked about last week where, you know, when the FBI guys come to her house beforehand, like this is the peak for Linda, like mm-hmm. that moment where she was like, yeah, I thought you'd be briefed. And now they have Monica and they don't need her anymore. And you see kind of the disappointment on her face when she knows it's over. Uh, and then she goes to the body shop, as we can <laughs> <Yeah>. tell. <laughs> yes, she <laughs> because, does. So we'll get, in, we'll get in later into what Monica gets up to, but they run into each other in the mall and have this just like silent moment and you know monica has already yelled at linda in the hotel room like linda what did you do and then she just kind of looks at her sadly while she's in the midst of this ordeal and i really like that that moment is just silent you know because what what 
else? What could they have to say to each other? At that I point? mean, her, the fact that she went shopping after that, like, is, <laughs> is it says everything, you know? Um, and I, I like that it's the body shop that just is so evocative to me of the late nineties. Oh, Cause I feel like yes. a lot of people are like, Oh, Bath and Body Works. And it's like, no, when I was, no, where I was as a teen, shop. the body shop was it. Those soaps mm-hmm. smell so good. I wanted to eat them. Like, like, <laughs> the, like the ones that were like, look like little raspberries or whatever. Like, yep. um, and, and I think about her going shopping. It's like, it's not so much callousness, which obviously there is callousness there too, but I kind of almost looked at it as Linda trying to convince herself that she hadn't just like really horribly stabbed a friend in the back, you know, and uh-huh. just trying to be like, well, uh-huh. that was like, I, that was my noon meeting and now I'm going to do some, yep. run some errands, you know, and yep. obviously when she sees Monica realizing, oh no, wait, like I just yeah. did something really major. Yeah. Yeah, so then she gets home. She's got her shopping bag. She uh, pulls her cigarettes out of her purse, and her daughter is basically like, what's up? And uh, again, we have like the continuing redemption of Allison here, where she's like really paying attention to her mom's feelings. And Linda basically brushes her off, um, probably because Allison sees way too clearly how upset Linda is, and Linda doesn't want to acknowledge that she's sad that this is all over. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, she's like, there, there are some men coming over lawyers and 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 she's try, trying to get the excitement of the intrigue back up but kind mm-hmm. of failing you know yeah yeah uh so yeah so then those lawyers come it's lawyers for paula jones and um she's you know they, they basically want her to be like can you tell us details like what can we get him to lie about in this deposition she's like well here's my box of personal items from the pentagon like the president will be you know she's trying to spin out her story still and she does that again like asked about the, the book that he gave her and she starts talking about reagan who wouldn't wear jeans in the white house and how grossed out she is by clinton basically um it's kind of her last stand and but it's also so consistent with the linda we've seen the entire time that like her personal distaste like prudish distaste for bill clinton is almost at the root of the whole thing yeah yeah and i guess you could almost look at it you know, I, I, in some larger sense, I guess maybe um, the American public did understand this or or view it as like a sullying of a hallowed office, you know. But yeah, like, but I, I think don't some know. People did, but I, and I just wonder how many, like, how how often the, the White House or the Oval Office is thought of in those terms after this. You know, even when mm. Obama was in office, and there was a, certainly a pride there, but um. I don't know. Maybe it maybe maybe it was Watergate that made it have sordid associations or maybe it was this, but it was just an interesting kind of sentiment that felt so like old and and kind of um not applicable to today's mindset, I guess. I think you can see it, you know, it it's usually applied to the person who you don't like, sort of the way Linda is doing it. You know, I think of Obama in the tan suit and how people right. thought that was just like unacceptable or Trump with the uh the display of McDonald's that was on the some kind of table in the White House yeah. and uh, you know, I think I think people find ways to be like, well, how could someone? But, you know, the white the Oval Office, plenty of bad things have happened in the Oval Office for yeah. its entire existence, including when Reagan was president and when Bush senior was president. <laughs> definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely, definitely. No, yeah, how many, how many deaths nature, have but... been ordered in that in that office? How many coups in Central America? Like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, now we're getting to our hot uh, Iran-Contra takes. It's, yeah. uh, I'm going to be here a while. Um. Okay. So let's go back to Monica and the FBI guys. Um, this crew, I, I honestly like it's a bunch of FBI guys. And then there's two who, you know, it's Mike Emick, who's played by Colin Hanks. Uh, and then Jackie Bennett, who's played by Darren Goldstein, um, who uh, if you listen to the Hallie Pfeiffer interview from last week, she's like known him 
for some time. And she's like, he's so nice and he's playing this bully. Man, he's really good at playing this uh, pain in the ass FBI guy who uh, does not know how to get a young woman to testify. He really sucks at the bad cop thing, I would say. Yeah, it reminded me of that. Um, you remember that Fred Armisen sketch from SNL where he played the producer of like a, a, a talk show? And the, like an Oprah-esque show, and but the host is out, so he's filling in and answering advice questions. And he's like, huh, what? Like to all these women who are like earnestly, uh, like it's just, it's just, it's like this bearish clumsiness, you know, um, that's effective a little bit in scaring her. But otherwise, mm-hmm. it's like, that is not the way to do this, you know? Yeah. And so they go into this whole thing being like, oh, she's young. She doesn't know what she's doing. It's a white collar crime. Like they're, they think they're going to flip her in less than an hour. They're calling it Operation Prom Night. Because it's half an hour with a girl in a hotel room and that um, I, I assume you did not doubt that's a real detail, but it is a real detail. That is what they called it. I assume it's because the FBI was obsessed with the episode of 90210 where uh, Dylan and Brenda lose where mm-hmm. she loses her yeah. virginity in the hotel room on the night of yeah. the prom. No, that, that's actually what they watched in the hotel room right. after they flipped away from NYPD Blue, right. <laughs> it turns out. Um, so, yeah, so they set that up. We see Monica going into um, into the mall and then we kind of jump to right after what we saw in the first episode where Monica is led up there, um, terrified and Beanie Feldstein in this, I think this is her most powerful episode. And we'll have an, we have an interview that our colleague Julie Miller did with her about this, um, because she's completely terrified. She's, uh, kind of reacting the way I think anyone would. And then she, you know, builds up her spine of steel after this. Um, but so Richard, if you were called into a hotel room with the FBI and you knew you had lied on an affidavit and they knew that you had lied on an affidavit, uh, what would your reaction to all of this be? I, I I don't know. I mean, I was forced to think about while watching this. I mean, I think it would kind of be similar to Monica's, you know, mm-hmm. I, I might. I, I mean, I think that in this particular case, and you see this kind of frustratingly threaded throughout the episode, especially when her mom comes into play, where there's this kind of like, I can't be the reason the president goes down, you know, or gets impeached or whatever. So yeah. there's still that loyalty. And I wonder, I you know, I, I, I guess it speaks well to her character that that she would do that, but it's maybe not her sense of like self-preservation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such a frightening circumstance. And I think Feldstein registers that mounting, oh my God, uh, kind of realization so well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, she like, she kind of like goes into full blown panic to start with and, you know, it's kind of screaming and like begging, um, Colin Hanks's character to, to fix this. And, you know, it's unclear like what she thinks will fix it. Like they want her to cooperate, um, but they also want her to make these taped calls to, uh, Betty Curry, Vernon Jordan, and to Clinton, you know, to kind of get it on the record the way they're lying, you know, operating under the assumption that Vernon Jordan got her a job in exchange for lying. And that's the thing that she refuses to do. You know, like if they hadn't insisted on that, it's possible she would have cooperated out of self-preservation. But it's the idea of that really personal betrayal of these people. Uh, it's maybe especially Betty. She seems to be the one that Monica feels the worst about betraying, which I don't know. Betty seems great. Like she probably deserves some protection in that situation. Yeah. And, and, and the immediacy with which she finds out her friend has betrayed her by recording her calls. Then 10 minutes later, not even is asked to do the same thing to people, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, maybe the timing of this wasn't very good on the FBI's part. You know, (laughs) Uh, they could have maybe like not so closely associated that betrayal with an, and then propose a new one. Um, But I think, you know, I think the reaction where she's kind of trying to bargain with Mike and plead and be like, just make this go away, kind of regressing into a sort of almost childhood mm-hmm. um, kind of tone. That would probably be me, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And then I would probably yeah. call my mom. <laughs> yeah. And then I would I would probably flip like my like the when you get later in the episode where Monica is kind of like 
insisting on calling her mom and, you know, figuring her way out of it. Like, that's the part where I'm like, oh, no, I would just tell them whatever they needed to know and just ask to, to leave it alone. I would I would buckle in a second. So I think the her. thing with the calling the mom and then you kind of get the phone tree with the dad, the dad and the lawyer and everything. There's something interesting happening there where it's comforting because you're like, she's so alone with all these like looming FBI guys. And then finally she like the rescue ship comes, you know, and she has mm-hmm. some people on her side and you're like relieved. But you also see kind of in a bigger sense, like how privilege and wealth yeah. does protect people. You know, she yep. she has this high powered lawyer that's one that's two phone calls away, not even, you know, and 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 a mother who like knows her way around sort of the annals of power, I guess, and, and kind of can, you know, try to negotiate. And so, you know, someone who is in a much from much different economic circumstances probably would not have had any of that resource yeah. available to them. Yeah, that's something I kept thinking about because over and over again, you know, she says, you know, right away, like I need my lawyer. They're like, OK, you can have a lawyer, but and they have this way of kind of flipping it back around to get her to not call her lawyer. And that's something that I would have done the exact same thing. And she, you know, later on, she's like, Mom, they won't let me call your lawyer. Her mom's like, what? What? Like you have a right to an attorney. That's like the rule number one. But they have made it so fuzzy for her that she can't like think straight about how the legal system would work. And I feel like I would have fallen for that in yeah. RP. Um, so, yeah, so you get so Ken Starr's on the line basically saying, like, we thought you'd be back by now. And so they bring in Jackie Bennett as the bad cop. Uh, he yells at her, um, you know, as Monica says, she wants to call her mom. You're 24. You're a smart girl. You don't need your fucking mommy to decide. Um, that is a direct quote that Monica recalls from that moment. Um, it's a good line. So it makes sense that it comes from reality. Um, but I did want to pause on when Monica does call her mom because we find her in this very fancy NYC apartment. And uh, do you do you remember what you overhear her saying before Monica calls? Oh, it's something about a musical, right? <laughs> uh, Mary Lou Henner is in Chicago, says she doesn't have the fizz of Anne Rain King. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because Mary Lou <laughs> Henner so was good. doing a lot of Broadway. She also, I think she replaced um, Bernadette Peters and Annie Get Your Gun as well around that same time. Um, that's really that's a part very of, specific funny joke. Part of me feels like that was in there like for you, like like they knew <laughs> yeah. we were going to do this season. It's just like, well, we'll get their attention. Right. Uh, and the grandmother wants to get Lion King tickets, and no one can get Lion King tickets. Um, it was a it's just a real moment. In yeah, time. she's like, I, are... okay. She's like, I think that's still impossible or something. You know, <laughs> I just like these kind of wealthy older ladies like clucking in this hotel room about like Broadway. You know, it mm-hmm. just it just felt like there's something so easy and cozy about that and then it's obviously rudely interrupted by what's happening in dc and it's a nice juxtaposition they've done a really good job as we were saying earlier establishing the privilege that she's coming from and kind of the world uh in which she a is like naive about a lot of things but b has all these resources um i also just wrote a note that mira sorvino so mira sorvino is here as monica's mom we've seen her briefly in previous episodes where this is really her emergence on the show in her rich lady of the 90s outfits and wig and everything else are priceless like her purse that she slings around like this like axe that's under her arm it's it's all just wonderful to me and the voice i mean you know she she's changing yeah. her normal speaking voice a little bit to have that kind of patrician tone to it um and it's really effective i think she's great yeah um so monica calls her mom in the hotel room and kind of can't say anything it's kind of like a hostage situation and then she says like i want to go talk to my mom in private uh give me 30 minutes and uh mike emick Colin Hanks's character is like, we're never going to see her again, which is what anyone would assume is that you have let her out of the hotel room. She's walking through the mall. She's on her own. Um, She calls her mom and says she's in trouble. And then she goes back. Yeah. Which is, again, I feel like that's what I would do. I would know that I was in trouble and these guys were powerful and I'd be too afraid not to. 
And I think it's totally fair to wonder why she did it, but I feel like I really get it. Well, yeah, because the concern would be if I, like, don't come back, then they have maybe cause to, what, arrest me, actually? Like, put me yeah, in handcuffs and put me in jail? Like, you know, and I, but I think also the fact that, you know, she worked at the White House, she worked at the Pentagon, you know, and these were jobs or internships, like, right out of school, like, this is someone who believes to some extent in protocol and in uh-huh, authority uh-huh. and 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 working within that, like getting your marching orders and sort of following those, you know. So I think maybe something innate in her was just like, well, that's what you do, though. It's the FBI. It's I mean, maybe the special prosecutor or whatever that wouldn't carry as much weight or maybe it would. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the difference. Like who has the right to arrest yeah. me? Does the special prosecutor have the right to arrest me? No clue. So I would just do it if they told me yeah, to do. Yeah. What I'm saying is that please don't implicate me in your crime because I'm going to be I'm going to flip on you in no time. So <laughs> no, no use. Um, so Monica's mom, who is Marsha Lewis, she's not married to Monica's dad, uh, calls her dad, uh, Bernie Lewinsky, um, at, at some kind of medical conference in L.A. and has the the great line. Forget your talk, Bernie. The feds have Monica. I, I, I wrote that line down and I was just like, it. <laughs> Given the context, it's not a funny line, but like s- separate it from the context <laughs> and have it be Mira Sorvino in a glorious wig saying, yeah, uh, forget your talk, Bernie. The feds have Monica is just terrific. Also, later in the episode, I never thought in my lifetime I would see Mira Sorvino again in a fabulous wig say, I'm not Bill Clinton's mother. <laughs> she's not, though. It's she's objective true, fact. Yeah. I mean, the Ryan Murphy involvement on this show, I think, you know. People who have watched all of his work kind of go back and forth on his stamp on a lot of these. But he did direct this one. And I do think you've seen the attention to kind of the overall fabulousness of Mira Sorvino in this character. Like there does seem to be that that little bit of touch there. And I mm-hmm. think it really fits in uh, with this woman's role in the story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, and, you know, I did find myself maybe I'm overreaching, but I did find myself thinking about Sorvino and her experience with Weinstein and all that uh-huh. and 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 how there must be some I would imagine emotional connection to this story because of that and I think that yeah. you can feel her connecting to it yeah I think you can too I think her like kind of swooping in is this mother bear figure um you can kind of imagine again like I don't want to reach much into it but like had had there been someone that powerful to kind of get in between a lot of these women and Harvey Weinstein a lot of things could have gone better yeah even if things didn't actually turn out that well for Monica Lewinsky uh in this period but We'll get there. Um, so, so Bernie Lewinsky gets on the phone then and introduces uh, another major player in this story, who is Bill Ginsburg, um, who was a close friend of Monica's dad, who is a malpractice lawyer and got brought in as um, as Monica's lawyer. Uh, I pulled up. So he, you know, he'll stay involved in the story after this. But I did pull up his obituary. He died in 2013. Um, and there was just this, you know, he basically got a ton of attention like he went on all he went on five sunday shows in a single day he kept talking about how he was going to negotiate the exclusive with her um he felt kind of attention hungry and by june of 1998 uh he had left like he was you know in the spotlight for a short period of time um but there was a point where he wrote a letter to ken Starr um and said congratulations mr Starr. as a result of your callous disregard for cherished constitutional rights you may have succeeded in unmasking a sexual relationship between two consenting adults and at this point, Monica had said that they that she had not had a relationship with him. So her other lawyer had to basically immediately issue a statement that was like, nope, no, 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 no relationship. Don't worry about it. Um, so he was a little bit of a loose cannon, as I think we see well in this episode. Yeah, I didn't know you could swear like that on FX. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some, well, yeah, we'll get to the swearing. That's like the that's the kind of the release valve in this whole episode. Um, and, and he starts by uh, just pouring Monica's dad a drink, which seems like what you would want your friend to do, right? Yeah, what it, it looked like it was tequila. 
Was yeah, it because there was like a lime I, on the rim? Yeah. Interesting that's true. Or like, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're in the situation, I, I don't judge. Um, so, yeah. So we get Bill Ginsburg in the picture. He is going to get on the phone with, with these guys once Monica's mom gets there. But Monica's mom's taking a train from New York. Um, uh, Jackie Bennett is convinced, you know, her slowness is part of a whole conspiracy where they're buying time for Clinton, which I think we know is not true. And then they're just killing time in this hotel room and uh, i've mentioned before that the first episode of slow burn um the slate podcast about all of this is is basically this episode it kind of follows this whole thing and you know that's what they did they like didn't want to watch cop shows and they didn't want to watch the news and so they had to just hang out in this hotel room which sounds terrible like you know maybe like maybe better than like being in a windowless room at interrogation but uh yeah i feel like they capture that sense of just like weird boredom very well yeah and they go to crate and barrel and yeah. have this bizarre conversation about what a decanter is. And, <laughs> you know, the the salesperson, she walks over to Monica and says, can I help you? And then Colin Hanks is like, she's fine. And then the salesperson yeah. kind of gives Monica this funny look. And I think there's something small happening in that scene, but actually kind of with big implications where, like, was this was one of the last times that Monica Lewinsky was anonymous, you know, yeah. just at a store. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. and I think that that's that's that. And then they go to that restaurant and every meal that they hand out, she's like, here's the, you know, exploding buffalo, whatever. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> it, it's just it's so kind of banal and and sad yeah. because you realize that banality would not be available to her maybe ever again. Yeah, I wrote down all these details. The uh, restaurant uh, was called Mozzarella's American Grill, which tracks. And the orders were the Pilgrim Burger, uh, chicken nacho pasta pie, which sounds terrible. <laughs> I don't know how that's a real yeah. food. And uh, Monica gets the bourbon teriyaki salmon, which is if you've ever been to that kind of restaurant and trying to order like the least like calorie laden thing on the menu, that's that's what you would get. That tracks with the Monica that we know. Yeah. Yeah. A salmon in a glaze of sugar, <laughs> basically. But it was <laughs> yeah. not as bad as the chicken nacho pasta pie or whatever. Yeah. Well, she also has this moment, um, you know, when they're out there in the mall, she kind of gets away from them. She goes to say she wants to use the bathroom in Macy's and she runs to a payphone and tries to call Betty Curry again, um, basically to warn her. And uh, in a in a quote from her memoir, I think that was on Slow Burn, she says, Betty is the only one I know I could call for two seconds and say something cryptically and it would get to the president. So she's really using this last ditch effort to warn Bill Clinton, which I just like. You know, I feel like I'm right with Monica's mom. Like, stop. Like, don't put yourself out there for this guy anymore. But she can't stop. She can't stop. There's a loyalty there. Still probably some, you know, residual love and affection. But, you know, I think that she probably also part animating that to some extent is this knowledge that she's learning very quickly, considering how these men are treating her and everything. That's like if if people see me as the young woman who brought down the president like i cannot be associated with that you know for for, for personal reasons but also for just like the rest of my life reasons you know and Mm -hmm. um you know it was out of her hands by that point obviously but yeah i think she's she's aware of the fact that like she's about to become very known yeah um, so when she's sitting at the restaurant with these guys, um, she asks why uh, they're threatening her with 28 years in prison, um, which at this point, I think we've already heard uh, Bill Ginsburg, who I should say was is played by, played by Fred Melamed, who I always associate with um, a serious man. Uh, wonderfully. And we'll talk more about him anyway. So she asked why 28 years and uh, Colin Hanks basically lays out five years perjury, five years subordination of perjury, obstruction of justice, five conspiracy, five following a filing a false affidavit, five. And tack on another three for witness tampering. And that's how you get to 28 years. 
Um, I'm going to say this, and I'm hoping I can get an answer and maybe sub in a bit of audio after this. It was actually 27 years. Monica said that in a, um, I think, a TED Talk a couple years ago. It's been widely reported that they threatened her with 27 years. So I don't know why it's 28 on the show. And I'm going to hope to find out. But I think either way, it's way too much and really scary to throw out a 24-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're really going hard at this. And and you you then really do start to wonder how much of it is politically motivated, you know, um, like mm-hmm. on each individual person's case, in, you know, in, you know, for each of them, because like, I don't know, it just, it just feels like this is such a, you know, just destructive strategy and these huge threats and all that, you know, uh, but I guess because they were on the time crunch, they, they had to be kind of urgent about it. Yeah. Um, and she has this one heartbreaking line in the scene where she says, I'll never have kids. No one's ever going to marry me, um, which is really sad to think about because she didn't go to prison for 28 years. Um, but her life was so marked by this anyway. And I, you know, Monica Lewinsky has made a lot of choices in her life and I think has done really well for herself. But she's not married and doesn't have kids. Um, and I don't know like how it, it that feels like a really it's sad for the Monica of the show. I don't know if it's sad for the real Monica, but it feels like a, an interesting kind of leap forward into the future about the impact of all of this, even though that present time never happened. And I think, you know, it it is a lot in this episode is doing this, too. It, it's like this is an episode about what too, far, far, far too often happens to young women or women in general who are involved in some sort of sexual scandal be it you know consensual or not it's like this is going to be on me forever and i am mm-hmm. going to be you know and and i think that the way that these men and they're joking about oh prom night sex with a girl in a hotel whatever you know yeah. they don't give a shit and 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 yep. they don't because it, it they don't see the consequences that's not sort of within their field of vision deliberately and um monica being a woman in the world is like, this is what's going to happen. Like I am going to be so ruined by this. Yeah. Uh, And it's another reminder of how the existence of the show at all is kind of a uh, bold reclaiming of the story that, that tanked her in that way. Okay. So Monica's mom, Marsha arrives at the hotel. Uh, Monica tries to call Betty again. I really would like for Monica's mom to get a handle on that. Um, And so she's basically like, okay, she can have immunity and, uh, She's not going to do the monitored calls. And um, then they call her dad and Bill Ginsburg gets on the phone. Uh, Monica is also surprised that this malpractice lawyer is her attorney. Um, And then you can you just feel the camera kind of get ready to to buckle in when this phone call starts between um, Bill Ginsburg and Mike Emick. And it kind of zooms in on both of them uh, because they say that they're negotiating. He says, negotiate, really? Is that the new term of art for unlawful detention? Uh, and it really escalates from there. Um, and it does feel like a really well-earned um, break of the tension of this entire episode that you get this really funny um, kind of justified smackdown of these guys. You know, and a kind of grim reminder that like that kind of belligerent bullying, stereotypically male behavior does can have its, you know, uses in for, on the good side of things, kind of, you know, yeah. like, like, at least in this very one instance, I mean, maybe Ginsburg went on to be sort of a fame, you know, hungry kind of person who overstepped. But, but like, you know, in this moment, his tactics definitely uh, have value and have an effect. Yeah. 
Uh, you, I, I'm finding the like humor in this, and you're just like, and it's a grim reminder of the gender, <laughs> Sorry, <yeah. laughs> the gender roles in our society. <laughs> but it's totally true because, like, he he is who these guys will respond to. Um, and in Slow Burn again, they um, you know, they talk about a different FBI agent who's not depicted on the show, kind of pointing out that there were no female agents who were participating in this and why that was a bad idea. And the other agents were just like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. Um, but you can imagine how it would have gone really differently if there had mm-hmm. been a woman in the room and how much more responsive she would have been. Uh, so he basically says to Monica and her mom, leave, you can go home finally. And um, as she's walking to the door, she says, thank you so much for everything, which is, again, an impulse I just feel really familiar with. Like, even when you've been wronged by somebody, you're just like, OK, thanks. Bye. Have you have you had this moment in your own life? I mean, I think maybe not specifically someone's been bad to me and I'm sort of but like I, I think in general, like, you know, depending on how you were raised, like I was raised to be like almost like obsequiously polite to yes elders or people in authority not in any sort of like rigid like militaristic way but just like you know just be kind and be safe thank you three times extra you know like all that stuff and like here it is just like reminding us of monica's relative youth that she's just like oh right i should be good and polite and 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 maybe she does mean it because mike was the nicest to her but yeah but he still did something horrible and um yeah in the pursuit of a goal that had nothing to do with her. Yeah. And you can see the look on his face. And I really just like Colin Hanks in this episode. We talked previously about how he's well cast here um, where his face kind of softens and he's like, Oh my God, like this is just a nice girl who we did all of this to. And she's been through hell and you know, she, she will not forget that day for the rest of her life. And probably he, he did, he died a couple of years ago, but I imagine he didn't either. Uh, Okay. So Monica and Marcia get home back to the Watergate. Um, She is, you know, shell shocked and, uh, Again, I says she wants to call Petty um, and her mom says absolutely not. So Monica goes to take a shower, um, looks briefly at the medicine in her bathroom. And you kind of imagine what's going through her mind earlier in the in the hotel with the FBI. She kind of said, what happens if I jump out this window? Um, and the episode ends with her mom sitting outside the bathroom door while Monica cries in the shower, which is just really heartbreaking. It's a it's a sad but really um, you know pretentious note about what's to come. And Lewinsky has said that that kind of immediate suicidal ideation was a part of this, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The, yeah. I think I think both think in Slow Burn, it said her mom made her shower with the door open so that okay. she didn't hurt herself. Um, but it, it makes, you know, based on what we've seen of her and what's happening, it makes sense on some level. Well, I mean, how do you get out of an impossible, impossible situation that involves the president of the United States and government agencies and law enforcement? It's like, I can see how easily it would be to go to that. You know, um, I don't know how seriously it's being entertained, but like, I mean, this sounds morbid, but like it is an option, I suppose, you know, in its in yeah. a horrible way. Yeah, I feel like in this episode, you see her run the gamut of all of, of like you see her really develop the spine and kind of be like, well, no, I'm going to call my mom and I'm going to leave and then also come back to the hotel room. Like, you, t- I think the complexity of her character really emerges in this episode that all of those things are possible within this character who we've gotten to know. And and the sad thing that we all know watching this is how much worse it's going to get, um, yeah. which is what the next episode is about. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess now that we're at the end of this and we've talked about all the varieties of, um, you know, emotion that Beanie Feldstein's bringing in this episode to Monica, let's listen to our colleague Julie Miller talk to Beanie Feldstein about this episode and the rest of the show. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect. 
her father the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague Heidi Blake at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm so excited to talk to you. I, I'm obsessed with the episodes. Again, this this role. I was so surprised um, to hear that even before Ryan Murphy had reached out to you, you had said in an interview that there was one person you wanted to play in real life. That was Monica Lewinsky. Oh, especially because you were so young during the actual impeachment saga. So wait, wait, tell me the real story. So it wasn't, well, I guess it was sort of an interview, but it was um, my... It's embarrassing, actually, because the book is right behind me. But uh, my, my dear friend Scarlett Curtis wrote, um, compiled a book of essays called Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Another Lies. And I wrote an essay in the book. And um, she asked me to do an event with her at Waterstones in England. And so it was this was way pre-COVID. This was like 2018, end of 2018. And it was, a you know, like a book signing event. And then we did a talk back type thing with the audience and someone in the audience asked me if you ever could, if you could play a real person who would you want to play and just sort of like I'd never thought about it before I was like I feel like maybe Monica Lewinsky like it was just like that it was like so um kind of off the cuff and it just it came in one ear and then left my mouth you know it wasn't like something I had deeply considered in any way I just was like I think I sort of I know she grew up Jewish in LA and did theater and that was kind of like my basic understanding of her and I was like maybe I could I could play Monica Lewinsky and and Scarlett was like oh yeah that'd be great I was like yeah it would be really fun and that was literally the whole extent of it um and then when Ryan called me which was about six months later in June 2019 I was also in London and I just couldn't believe my ears because I was like wait, what? I don't, I don't know. I don't know enough about manifesting, but I I believe that's kind of how it works. (laughs) So completely. It was, it was, it was surreal to get a call from Ryan Murphy that was like, do you want to play Monica Lewinsky? And also Sarah Paulson is playing Linda Tripp. I was like, sorry, what? Um, I'm literally (laughs) Paulson's number one fan as, as like a young actor. Um, Watching her play Marsha Clark and specifically, I think, was like a, a, a performance that all of us watched and studied and, and just couldn't believe was so deeply affecting and still kind of, I, I still can feel it in me today, even though I haven't watched it in years. Um, she's always been one of my favorite actors. So when he called and he said, I have this 
I want you to do this thing with me. I want you to play Monica Lewinsky. I was like, yes, 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 yes. And then he was like, oh, and pa- by the way, Sarah Paulson was playing Linda Tripp. I was like, well, okay, this is getting ridiculous. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how it happened. Some people go about playing real life characters. They want a distance from the actual person if they're still alive. But you and Monica, who's a producer on the series, formed a really, really, it sounds like, deep friendship can you can you talk a little bit about that? Did you know that you were going to develop such a relationship with her? I had um, just got off playing Catelyn Moran and How to Build a Girl, which I'm not playing a. I wasn't playing exactly Catelyn in her teens, but it's it's as close to that as you could possibly be. Uh, uh, and uh, fictional autobiography, kind of, is how she describes it. So I had had a beautiful experience, a very formative, beautiful experience with Catelyn so, that I think really helped me prepare for playing Monica because I I know what it's like to have this sort of weird, I'm becoming you, I I need to know everything about you. Um, a beautiful experience and I really hit it off and kind of feel like family now. So that I think really helped me prepare for playing Monica. Um, but this was also the first time in the um, American crime story franchise that they involved a real person. Um, and I think it was very different than from what people expect. I, I didn't sit there studying her. I didn't, um, I didn't call her before a scene and ask her, you know, X, Y, or Z. I did first, what I did was a lot of my own research before I ever met her. I was Ryan called me in June 2019 Monica and I didn't meet till March 2020 so I had almost a year to just sort of get my teeth sink my teeth into it and I read Monica's story which is Andrew Morton's um book that Monica gave interviews for that's her sanctioned you know um text and I listened to every uh tape obviously and then read there's just so much material so I read all of the transcripts of all the depositions and just read everything that was available at the time and our incredible research team put together like a Monica Lewinsky Dropbox of all the information that they had. And I just (laughs) tore through it. Um, So by the time I met Monica, really my goal was to just create a comfortability with each other and for her to know that she could really trust me, that I, that I had her back, that I was really looking out for her, that I had done my research. I put so much time into it. I wanted her to know that I, I, did not take my responsibility lightly and also just get to know her as two people. You know, Monica now is completely different than the Monica she was in 1995 to 1998 and to to know her and for her to get to know me too, so that it felt more reciprocal and not just like this person that's like, you know, doing all this research on her life. I can imagine it would be a little bit odd. Um, So I want her to be like, this is what I'm about too. here. You can know a little bit about me. And, um, just get to know each other. And, and it, it really wasn't, um, for me, finding Monica was more, of uh, an interior thing versus an exterior thing. I wasn't as, um, obviously I listened to the tapes and I watched every interview of her, but because we have such a similar grounding place of like, very similar upbringings, I was like, I don't need to push anything too much as far as the voice or anything like that. And I just really wanted to focus on her interior life and what she was going through at the time, because it was very complex. You know, Monica's really a bundle of contradictions. She's extremely naive and yet extremely savvy. And she's incredibly confident and yet remarkably insecure. 
So I, I really, that push and pull inside of her was really what I was um, focused on. And, and again, it wasn't something that her and I talked so much about out loud. What we talked about out loud was more just like getting to know each other and, and talking about life now and what we're into. I would call her every now and then and be like, what nail polish color did you wear? And, (laughs) um, you know, um, what was the Nick? Did you call this grandma, this nickname, or did you call that? Like I got, you know, I just, did you call this your, her best friend, Catherine appears in a series. Um, and I was like, did you call her cat? Did you call her calf? Like I wanted, you know, those little specificity, um, little details I wanted to get, make sure I was getting right. So I would consult her on that, but mostly I did my own research very thoroughly alone and then just came to her as, as a person that I wanted her to get to know as much as, you know, I wanted to be reciprocated. Right. Being so kind of feeling that responsibility to protect Monica in this portrayal. What, what is your relationship, your thoughts on Linda Tripp? I'm cur- she has been villainized so much and Sarah does such a beautiful job. Even if you aren't sympathetic to her, I feel like you start to understand why she did the things she did, whether they were right or wrong. So you do get more of an understanding, but I'm curious, Chris, what you think of that in the relationship? Absolutely. You know, I think our story is really um, very focused on, on the women's perspectives and, and which at the time in the nineties were so silent, so um, picked apart, so characterized. And so our goal with the series was to focus on the female humanity at the center of it. Cause so often this story is told from Newt Gingrich versus Bill Clinton or Ken Starr versus Bill Clinton. And, and we wanted to unpack the three women that really got those men to those moments, you know, like the, the moments that we know through such a particular male gaze, we wanted to show you the women that were kind of tossed aside during that time and not just from the perspective of their lipstick color or their weight or their nose or the way that they spoke, but the humanity and the interior life within them. And, you know, I think that I have been really deeply lucky in my career as someone who, um, as Beanie values my female friendships more than almost anything in this world. I've been really lucky to tell female friendship stories. Um, this one's a little different, um, but it is still a friendship story. You know, I think that the central relationship of the show is Linda and Monica, and it is not Monica and Bill, which is the expectation, right? It's it's actually Linda and Monica. And I think that these women were all made to feel invisible. And what happens when you, as a human being, are made to feel like you don't matter? or you're tossed aside, right. or you're made to feel insignificant. What does that, what can that feeling create in someone? And so I think, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think Sarah Paulson does a literal, like I always tell her that she's so talented. She shouldn't be allowed to work anymore. I'm like, you should just stop, just stop it. It's not, it's just, right. um, but I think she's watching her create this woman was an ex, like a, a masterclass in acting for me because it was so, incredible. Um, but obviously I think that what the series does so well, as you said, is that it, it really helps you understand how Linda did what she did. And I think you, you are in, you know, in Linda's in home life, just as much as you're in Monica's home life. Like, I think that the fact that you get to peel back the curtain and go home and watch these women have those conversations that you might've heard on the tapes. Tapes are two dimensional, you know what I mean? Just sound 
or just a blank photo of a stock photo of the two women on C-SPAN. But when you watch Linda hit record and then you watch Monica pick up the phone and she's peeling a cucumber and rattling off her day to Linda, there's a humanity that comes about just by exploration of what these, what was actually happening, you know? And I think it's really visceral and it's really affecting, but I think that obviously I think Linda's betrayal is one of the most singular epic female uh, friendship betrayals of all time. And there's kind of nothing like it, but at the same time, Sarah's performance and Sarah, Sarah Paulson's performance and Sarah Burgess's writing help you understand how she got there and what she thought she was doing. And I think that's, um, it's, you know, it was important for us to, to really go along with all three, Linda, Monica, and Paula. It's not singularly from Monica's perspective. And I think that was very um, important, again, to understand how we got to this sort of stock understanding of what we as a society know of the story, which is like, oh yeah, that woman from the Pentagon recorded Monica Lewinsky. And that, you know, like, what was that? How did that happen? How did they become friends? Why was Monica drawn to her? And I think all of those um, questions get answered in the story. And I think for me as, as Monica playing Monica, it's so clear why they became friends because they both had been at the white house, which is this shiny, beautiful, warm work experience. And they get tossed aside to the Pentagon, which in their perspective is like icy and, and cold and um, barren. And they find each other in that space where they both feel like they were tossed aside. And that's a very powerful kind of starting place for two people to connect. Right. And you, you mentioned the betrayal. I want to talk about episode six specifically manhandled because that is just heart wrenching. There are so many details about operation Promenade that I was not aware of. Um, I imagine it must've been one of the worst, if not the worst day in Monica's life. Can you talk about how you approach that episode? Because she goes through so many, so many heartbreaks, the realization that her closest friend in Washington has been taping her, that she's kind of turned her in. Um, The moment where I I didn't know that Linda was in the room, the hotel room at first when Monica was taken in there. Can you talk about your approach to the episode? And did you speak to Monica about the story, Um, that particular storyline? Yeah, so episode six was always sort of um, the, it's, it's literally the turning point in Monica's life. You know, um, it's, it's the, it's January 16th, 1998 is a, is a day that sort of lives forever when as someone who's playing Monica, that her life changed forever. That was the day her life changed. And for me as an actor, um, I was so grateful that Ryan was directing it because we really went on a very special journey. And for me to get to work with someone who I admire so much, who I, I revere and I think is just absolutely brilliant just the most you know he's he's an expert at creating television that moves people that changes people's minds that affects people on it so the fact that I got to go on that journey with him was life-changing for me um it was a 23-day shoot um which in television is sort of unheard of I shot all of Booksmart in 25 days so um the prom night sixth episode of the show was um, such an incredible task. Um, And it was, 
as an, for me as an actor, um, by far, by far the most emotional place I've ever had to go to. But because I knew that this was Monica's real life, it was, it was my job as her, as her bodyguard of sorts or as her portrayer to make sure that that felt visceral and felt that you could feel the pain that Monica was going through. And so I had to feel that pain in order for the audience to feel the pain. And sometimes Ryan would come up to me and be like, we have to go get, cause there were so many guys in the room. So we had to do so many takes and it would take us like a whole day to shoot three pages, you know? And, um, you know, he'd be like, we have to go again. And I just really dug down deep and I just was like, it's for Monica. We'll go as many times as you need to go. It doesn't matter. Like, I'll just do it again. Because I agree with you, you know, as someone who was very young at the time that this happened, I didn't even really know what that day was. I think I had known that she had been led to a mall and then a hotel, but it was very murky for me. Um, When I started doing my research, it was gutting to understand that a 24-year-old girl in her workout clothes was in a room with eight to 12 men with guns um, and asked to turn on the president and Betty Curry and Vernon Jordan. And to watch that girl hold her ground and not, not be, not be, not change sides, you know, not, not um, do what they want is a remarkable act. Um, And one of the most brave things I I've ever portrayed, you know, I think it was, it was a life-changing episode for me as an actor because it pushed me to places I didn't think I could go. Um, But it was all for the most important goal of of Monica's pain and what she had to go through being um, understood by people finally. Right. Did you get to speak to Monica about the storyline or no? Monica and I are or do you not want to say <laughs> we're always in touch, but I, I knew what that was. There had been enough research right. and you have to understand Monica was interviewed 22 times about this by the independent council. I believe it was 22 it might've been 23. Forgive me if it's 23. Um, but there was so much material on what that was. And even the specificities of how she felt about Mike Emmett versus Jackie Bennett. And when one of them was in the room versus when the other one was in the room and when her mom finally got there and all of that was in Monica's story, the book, um, very, you know, viscerally. And then what Sarah Burgess wrote, it was all so there. And I, I think the only thing that Ryan and I talked very specifically about is when you're someone going through trauma, you're not, um, you're not always present. Sometimes you can really shut down and be sort of numbed. And then that, rush of emotion will come back up and you'll be more viscerally kind of outwardly emotional. And sometimes you can't stop crying. And so we wanted to make sure that that kind of roller coaster of what it's like to be in a traumatic experience was portrayed and that it wasn't um, all kind of a similar energy because she was there for 12 hours. So it's going to be a roller coaster and up and down. And so just kind of tracking that Ryan and I did very specifically along with Sarah Burgess Um, but I didn't, I, I didn't call Monica and speak to her directly about it because I felt like I knew what it was and I, I didn't want to make her have to go there. 
it is such a roller coaster because it's astonishing, horrifying to see what she went through. And then there are lighter moments because they were spent all that time in the mall where she's looking at like home decor with these federal agents and they're sitting down to eat. Um, but I'm curious what it was like working with Sarah on that episode, because it's such an epic betrayal as, as an actress, it must be so kind of good to dig into um, horrifying to live through in real life. But can you talk a little bit about, about that particular episode? I mean, I could talk about working with Sarah Paulson forever. It's literally my favorite topic of conversation. My partner and my family are like, we get it. You love her. I'm like, but yeah, you don't understand. Um, she is the greatest scene partner and greatest. Um, also, it was my first time producing anything. And, and she was such an incredible, um, you know, co-producer in that way. Um, colleague, I guess you could say. And, we were really partners on this journey. Um, I've, which is like surreal for me to say still sometimes, but I think that the greatest thing the show gave me was my friendship with Sarah on a personal level. And I think um, she's just the, like the greatest thing to ever happen to acting. So it was, it was truly remarkable, but I think, you know, it was a hard, um, difficult shoot because of COVID when we shot all of the things in the mall, we were shooting in a, open mall during COVID and it was, you know, um, had its obstacles, but I will never forget filming that scene where Monica, this is a spoiler. So stop reading or listening. If you haven't watched the sixth episode. Oh, great. It's coming out after the sixth episode. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. But, uh, the, you know, the moment where Monica sees Linda shopping is, is, you know, she, it's one of my, I think one of the most poignant scenes I've ever filmed and just the look on, and, and even the moment in the, in the elevator when she, I love the way Ryan filmed that of, of when Monica's in the foreground and when is in the background. And I think all of episode five, Monica knows something's wrong, but everyone is gaslighting her. You know, she's like, at, talks to President Clinton about it. She talks to Linda about it. She's like, something is going on. And everyone's like, no, you're, nothing's going on stop it, stop it, stop it. And so for that feeling to have been right, but she could never have imagined that this is what was going on. And I think, um, I didn't know when I was doing my research until I did my research that Linda was in the room either. And I think that's one of the most, I think that episode in general is just sort of truth is stranger than fiction. Like it is the epitome of that. Like when you, as you said, when you watch Monica sitting with Mike Emick and, um, Agent Fallon eating a burger, you know, eating a burger. It's like surreal. Um, but the the dynamic was, you know, the first five episodes of the show are watching Monica and Linda become friends, watching their relationship develop, you know, that sleepover scene where they're both, you know, specific Monica's very vulnerable and she's really open and, and tells Linda things she hasn't told many people at all in her life. Um, and then episode five, I think, is so wrecking when, you know, she's wired. And then for it to all kind of come out in episode six, it's very emotional. And I think that the moment where Monica says, Linda, what did you do? After she starts to hear the tape um, is I just I, I just put myself exactly as my job is to do in Monica's shoes of 
of I've given my so much of myself to this older woman who I respect and I need and I love and I have frustrated with and I you know it's such a complex relationship between a 24 year old and a 40 something year old woman and and a betrayal like she could never have anticipated and I think to find out that information not only to just find it out but to find it out surrounded by men that are using it as leverage to get you to turn on the president is the most high stakes experience anyone could maybe ever go through at 24 in your workout clothes. So I just tried to put myself right in Monica's shoes and it was very difficult. Um, by far, the, I mean, I'm not usually someone to like take the feeling home with me. I try to really leave it at the door, but there were days where I just couldn't because it was so was just it was a lot and but I to get to do all of that with Sarah Paulson was the greatest greatest gift of all time how is it seeing her in full Marsha or Marsha my gosh thinking of the last role but in full Linda garb the wig the the prosthetics you know it's it I don't see it anymore like I fully speak to her as Paulson in any version of the Linda get up I've seen it like you know, when it's in, she's in the middle of getting ready, when she's getting out of being Linda, when she's full tilt, like all of it. I'm like, it's actually crazy that I, it's like, I have x-ray vision. Like I can just see through it into Paulson. Um, but I'm like, this is weird. Like I shouldn't be this comfortable talking to you as you when you're in this um, incredible, you know, the artistry of, of the prosthetics and hair and makeup team on our show, you know, Ryan is so brilliant at bringing like the visual specificity. And that was so exciting for me um, to play in that landscape because it's just everyone at the absolute top of their game, the absolute best hair and makeup, prosthetics, wardrobe, set design. Um, So all of that was really, really exciting for me to enter his world in that way. Um, But again, watching, watching Paulson be Linda Tripp was um, acting masterclass it really was um I want to talk about Clive's Clinton um a little bit in the media coverage it's it's just so crazy to look back you don't forget the power differential you forget how vast the age, age differential was between I think it's 20 plus years between Monica and Bill and here you are playing as as a young actress against a much older actor I imagine that that differential was very apparent to you in those scenes. Can you talk a little bit about that and and maybe realizing just how how unfair that balance was? Yeah. Um speaking just to acting with Clive, I'm not an athlete whatsoever, but I can only describe it as like being at Wimbledon or something. Like it felt <laughs> it felt or like the Olympics. Like it was um epic. That's the only way I could describe it. It just, you know, again, Clive, you know, is a master of, of acting. He's he's one of the most gifted actors we have. And so for me, still as someone who feels like they're young and they're growing and they're, I think we're always learning and I, I hope to always be learning no matter what age I am. But I still feel like, especially I'd never done television in this way before. So I still feel like I'm really lo- learning and growing and to get to have Sarah Paulson and Clive Owen to do it with was in addition to like Ray Dawn and Mira Sorvino. I mean, the, the cast is extraordinary. Um, 
but Clive, yeah, it really felt like I was like playing at Wimbledon. Like, I was like, this is, this is kind of beyond my wildest expectations, but um, yes, uh, you know, Monica was very clear then and is still very clear now that their relationship was consensual, but just because there's consent does not mean there is not a deep power imbalance. Um, I think any person um, who's like at the, uh, you know, any intern who's dating their boss, that is clear power imbalance. Um, No matter what field you are speaking of, whether it's in a restaurant, you know, as a whatever, or in an office or whatever it is, but when it is not only the boss, but it is the most powerful man in the country, maybe arguably the world, it's just clear. It's just very clear. Um, but I think that what people nece- don't necessarily think about when they think of it is that it permeates into everything. So because he is the president, she can't contact him. He has to contact her. She can't see him. He has to, you know, invite her into the um, she has to get clearance to come to obviously the White House. So it, it permeates everything. And then that becomes a 22-year-old, 23-year-old girl not socializing, not going out with her family because she's waiting for a call. And so all of that behavior kind of, um, I think watching it in the series is is um, more visceral than necessarily reading it or thinking about it. Um, but yeah, there's a very, I mean, he's literally the most powerful man in the world and she's a 22-year-old intern um, or a 23-year-old legislative affairs worker or a 24-year-old Pentagon worker, but still she's, you know, he's the president. That's the most power a person could possibly have in our country. Anyway, checks and balances, but yes, you know, and so I think it's it's just clear as day. And, and it was very, um, it was also very important for me f- to portray Monica's true um feelings for him because it was it was um very uh emotionally resonant for her um that she cared deeply about him she's someone that really cares deeply about people and so I wanted that side of their relationship to be there very um clearly as well right what do you hope viewers take do you do you think about shows in terms of that your work in terms of that what you hope audiences take take from the series it's hard with it would be wrong with this particular show to not think that way or because I think it's different for every generation actually I think that for those that were of waking you know thought and age when this was happening I think they my hope is that they something is illuminated for them that they didn't know and that understanding fosters a deeper humanity and understanding for the women at the center of the story. But then for the younger generations, so like my age and younger that were either alive, but toddlers or not even born yet, they're taking in the story for the first time from the female perspective. And I think that is really exciting. And, um, you know, we had a little screening in New York and um, one of the women I was there, brought her 17-year-old daughter, and her daughter was like, can I please meet Monica? Can I, all I want is to meet Monica. Can I please? And that was, it was very moving for all of us because that was not, there was none of that at the time. There was no one 
you know, Monica was uh, a meal for society to sort of pick at. And it was all about her weight or her intentions or, um, you know, other men that she'd been with coming forward in such a grotesque, horrific way um, to just throw her under the bus for attention in order for them to get media attention. And, you know, she was, she was an SNL character. She was a caricature. She was um, to this or to that. And so I hope it's so exciting to me that the younger generations could just know, you know, the very human portrait of Monica Lewinsky. We were never trying with any of the characters to hide their mistakes or their complexities. That's all we wanted was to show that they were human and being human is not only being good, it's also messing up. And what, in what ways does she mess up? How does she mess up? What is she missing? You know? Um, And I just hope that they get a very nuanced, complex portrait of three women that, were tossed aside during this time um, and really unfairly treated. How cool to be part of this project that could turn around that perception completely. Are you part of the Ryan Murphy universe now? Is it going to be you and Sarah Paulson on the next crime series? Just in different characters? Oh my God. Different real Um, life characters? I mean, in my dreams, yes. um, I... I, I really working with Ryan on that. I mean, on the first episode, but on the sixth episode was such a profoundly life-changing experience for me collaborating with him. And as a producer, the fact that he asked me to be a producer on the series was such an incredible empowering thing. Um, so I, I would do anything with Ryan. I, I worship him and I, I just really, I love this company of, not only actors, but also crew. Like, so, like I think 95% of our crew worked on both other installments of American Crime Story. It's such a family. Um, and that's such a beautiful kind of behind the scenes thing as well, that everyone is very loyal and tight-knit and believes in, in the artistry of what they're making. And yeah, I surely love them all. Well, thank you, Beanie, for jumping on the phone on the computer and taking the time I really enjoyed the conversation thank you so much so did I I really appreciate your your questions thank you so much we've all been there before you're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who only buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now.
That does it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week um, to talk about episode seven. You know, look behind the curtain. This is the last of the screeners that we've seen. So we'll uh, we're kind of running out of a sense of where the show is going after here. Um, and but we all ha- we all know what happens in history. So um, we will, I I can maybe not spoil too much, but say that uh, John Goodman's on SNL uh, is going to make an appearance in next week's episode. Um, in the meantime, uh, Richard, where can people find you? Well, I'm developing a recipe for a low-fat chicken nacho pasta pie. So I'm going to be hard at work in the kitchen, <laughs> making you know batch after batch after batch, trying to solve to crack the case. Uh, when I take a break, I'll be tweeting and writing at vf.com. And I think, Katie, should we mention briefly that the still watching feed is going to look a little bit more stuffed in the next couple coming yes. days? Well, yeah. Thank you for being on top of it. Uh, this, this is how you can tell I'm still a newbie at, at the Still Watching Adventure. I just keep forgetting for all of our programming notes. Um, but yeah, we're going to start talking about Succession soon. Um, so uh, October 17th is when the first episode of the season three, when the first season three episode airs, you and I will be joining our colleague Sonia Soraya to talk about the new season. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exciting. Um, but until then, Katie, where can people find you? Um, well, I will be uh, in the business center using the fax machine because it's a goddamn Ritz Carlton. <laughs> uh, you can also well, you can find me on the Little Goldman podcast with you uh, and on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And if anyone wants to email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, I've been trying to come up with lyrics for Take Me Down to Pentagon City where the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so if someone has a good idea for that, please do let us know. I think Crate and Barrel has to fit in there somewhere. You got it. But it barrel rhymes or with Decanter. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't even talk about how it's the uh, is the same Crate and Barrel where she and Linda were not a week, not a few weeks oh, earlier, yeah. looking at Christmas plates. Right. Decanters and Christmas plates, part of any holiday tablescape. Uh, as always, this week's episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.